Turn with me now in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We continue our study through this great uh, sermon of the early church. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Before we hear the reading of God's word, uh, let us pray and ask God for the grace we will need to hear his word with understanding, to receive it with faith and love, and to bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of his glory. Pray with me. Father God, we ask that you would be with us even this morning. We are gathered, but we are gathered separately, as odd as that is. We still trust your promise, Father, that where we gather in your name, you are there with us, and where you are, your word cannot return void. Remember your promise this morning and cause your word to be received, to put down roots and to bring forth fruit to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. This is the very word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When I was a kid, I used to think of this great cloud of witnesses that the author mentions. I, I used to think of it as the crowd at a sporting event. I used to think that the author was encouraging us to, to run well because there is such a great crowd watching us, as, as if he was saying that, that we should do our best because so many people are spectating. I no longer think that this is correct. I no longer think this is the image that the author has in mind. Because this great cloud that surrounds us is a crowd not of spectators, but of witnesses. A witness is one who testifies to, to what he has seen, one who, who testifies to what he has experienced. And the witnesses that the author has in mind are those witnesses which he has been describing for us in the previous chapter. Abel and Noah and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and, and Moses and, and all of the others, all those who walked by faith. They are witnesses. But what are they witnesses to? What is it that they have experienced? What is the, the substance of their testimony? It can be nothing other than the faithfulness of God. These are those who walked in the footsteps of faith and were commended by God. These are those who experienced God's faithfulness firsthand. And when you look at the last paragraph of, of chapter 11, you, you may find it a bit odd that, that these are the witnesses that the author refers to. He says that they are witnesses, that they testify to the faithfulness of God, and yet they did not receive what was promised. 
How can they testify to the faithfulness of God when God didn't deliver, when, when God didn't give them what they were hoping for? Well, somewhat paradoxically, it is the fact that they did not receive what was promised that makes them compelling witnesses, that makes them exactly the witnesses that we need. Because their endurance reminds us that their hope was not of this age. Their hearts were not set on the treasures of this earth. They were not looking to to receive an earthly kingdom. They were not looking to receive a, a temporal homeland, but rather they were looking to the city of God. They were looking to the coming kingdom. They knew that what had been promised to them was beyond this age. It transcended this present evil age, as Paul calls it. They were looking for the reward that was to come. They were looking for the reward that would be eternal, an inheritance that is indestructible, unfading, unspoiled by sin. And the idea that the author wants us to see is that they were able to endure even to the end. They they are there to testify to us that it is possible to walk this road, that it is possible to remain steadfast, that it is possible to keep going when your hope is set on that which is yet to come. Or as the author puts it here, it is possible to run with endurance the race that is set before us when we are looking to the reward. So this morning, I want us to ask two questions related to this race that the author mentions. I I want us to ask, what is this race that has been set for us? What, What is this race that these witnesses are encouraging us to run well? And how exactly are we to run? Where are we supposed to find the strength to run with endurance? So first, what is this race that has been set before us? I think people often think of this race, this this course that has been marked out. They, They often think of this race as God's secret will for their life. They have in their mind this idea that that God has has choreographed an entire life for them, a a, a script of who they are supposed to marry, of of where they are supposed to go to school, of what job they are to pursue. They believe that, that God has all of this choreographed for them, and now they're supposed to be trying to figure it out so that they can stay in the center of God's will. Well, let me say to you emphatically this morning, But that is not what the author is talking about. The the scriptures never speak of God's will in that way. The the scriptures never speak of of some secret plan for your life that that God has left clues here and there and that you're supposed to be figuring out like some spiritual Sherlock Holmes. That is not at all what God has in mind. The course that is marked upward, it is God's will for your life, but it is not some secret will, but rather it is his revealed will. It is that which God has said, this is my will for your life. You see, you may not know that there's actually a a verse in the New Testament that tells us precisely what God's will is for our lives. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, this is God's will. This is God's will for your life. His will for your life is that you would be holy 
that you would be sanctified, that you would be progressively conformed more and more to the image of the glory of Christ, that you would become like your elder brother in all his glory. And of course, the the picture of that is God's law. God's law, which Jesus himself told us is is summarized in the commands to to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the commands that Jesus perfectly fulfilled, that, that Jesus perfectly embodied, and it is to his image that we are to be conformed. It is it is his holiness that we are to emulate. And so this race set before us is God's general revealed will for our lives. It is the call to be holy. This, that's what the race is. It is the, the path of holiness. But having said that it is this general will, this general revealed will, let me also say that it is specific. It is the race that has been set before you. It is the race that has been marked out for you to run. You see, we won't all love God and neighbor in exactly the same way. We are given different gifts. We are given different strengths. We are given different opportunities. And we must love God in the place and in the ways that God provides. Think of Galatians chapter 6. Writing to the Galatians after telling them of the, the great fruit of the Spirit, he says, now... Do not grow weary of doing good. Do good, but then he adds, as you have opportunity, as he opens doors, as he gives you chance, do good. And doesn't give us each the same opportunities. We, we each have different opportunities, and we are to take advantage of the opportunities that he sets before us. So, so how do we know what opportunities are ours? How do we know what it is that he has given us to do? Well, well, think of the story of the Good Samaritan. He didn't go out looking for someone to help, but he responded to the opportunity that was in front of him. And I would suggest to you that it will be the same for each of us. Each of us must respond to the opportunities that God gives. Each of us must do the good that he gives us to do. He Paul actually says this in in Ephesians chapter 2, having said that we have been saved by grace through faith apart from works, he then goes on to say, we are Christ's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, the very good works which he has prepared in advance that we might walk in them. There it is. He has prepared good works Good works defined according to his law. Good works defined as as loving God and loving neighbor. And we are to do those good works that he has prepared for us. We are to do those good works that he gives us opportunity to do. So this is the race. It It is God's general call to holiness marked out by the specific opportunities and and gifting that he has given to you as an individual. That is your race. That is the Christian life. See, we are saved apart from works, but we are saved to do good works. We are are saved to a life of service. We are saved to a life of, of walking humbly with our God, doing justice, loving mercy as we go. This is the Christian life. 
And the author wants us to know that this life is an endurance race. It's not a sprint. It is a race of endurance. It is a long race. You see, becoming a Christian is not a one-time decision. Yes, there is a moment in which we pass from from death into life. There is a moment when we are justified and adopted as, as God's children. But that is the beginning of the Christian life, not the sum. We, we are called into his family. We were called out of darkness into light so that we might begin walking in the light. It is a long day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade process. Not only is it a long race, it is a hard race. It is hard because our flesh pushes against it. We, we are not naturally inclined to love God and neighbor, but rather in our sinful nature, we, we despise God for being God because we would prefer to be God ourselves. And we despise our neighbors because we would prefer that everyone serve us. So our sinful nature is contrary to this race and we must learn to, to push against it. But not only is our flesh contrary to this race, the the world is against this race. The whole world is going in another direction, and it is hard to swim against the flow. It is is hard to resist the, the flood of debauchery that says that we must be ourselves and serve ourselves and look out for our own interests. It is hard to to push against the, the flow of the world. But not only is it that sort of unconscious flow of the world. There was also the active schemes of the devil. As he works against God's people, as he seeks to undermine your faith, as he seeks to lure and entice you into sin. And so we face these three common enemies, our, our flesh, we, the world, and, and the devil. And, in, and all together, they make this a hard journey. A hard journey to run well. So we must ask ourselves, if the race is long and the race is hard, how are we to run well? Where are we to find the strength to run with endurance? Well, the author actually gives us two things to do that we might run well. First, he says that we must lay lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Earlier, I said every sin which which so easily entangles. That's the, the, the verse that sticks in my mind from my childhood. But we are to lay aside every weight and every sin. But that in and of itself is not enough. It is not enough just simply to rid ourselves of burdens. Because having, ridded, rid, having laid aside those burdens, we must also look to Jesus. Let's consider each of these steps. First, we must lay aside every weight and sin. Now, there are some who think that the author is just using parallelism, that that by weight and sin, he is really referring to the same thing, that the, the second phrase simply defines the first. The weights that we are to lay aside are those sins that that cling so closely. And that is possible, given the way that the author puts it. But it's also possible that he has two things in mind here. And I'm inclined to believe that uh, that that is true, that that the weights and the sins are to be slightly 
distinguished. The word for weight that he uses here is a, is a word that really can be used for any heavy burden, any, any burden that's hard to bear, any, any burden that impedes your progress. But when it was used of athletes, when it was used of those who were to be running a race, it often referred to their heavy clothing, to the heavy robes that they would normally wear. They needed to lay those aside. They needed to dress for the race. We do the same thing today. If I'm going out for a run, I'm not going out in my suit. I'm going to put on running clothes, clothes that let me move freely. This is what the author is talking about, setting aside our, our normal robes, setting aside our normal clothing that we might run well, dressing for the action we have been called to. But what are the robes? What are the weights that the author has in mind? I would suggest to you that he is referring to all of those things that distract us from our calling. All of those things that distract us from running well and the, the call to love God and to love neighbor. Not things that are necessarily sinful in themselves, but things that claim our focus, things that, that, that cause us to, to forget about the, the primary calling of, of serving God or of loving our neighbor well. We see one such example in the scriptures when, when Paul refers to uh, the Corinthians' desire to eat meat. He says there's nothing sinful about eating the meat that is offered in the marketplace. He said, but why would you eat meat when it harms your brother? If, you're, if your brother has a weak conscience and, and his conscience is, is harmed by the idea that this meat that is sold in the marketplace was, was previously offered to an idol in, in some temple, if, if your brother's conscience is harmed by that thought, if he can't quite get past it, why would you demand your right to eat meat to your brother's harm? It's an interesting question. He asked something similar about the lawsuits that were going on in the church at Corinth. He says, why would you not rather be harmed than to drag your brother before a secular court? It's the same idea. Why would you not rather be harmed? Why would you not set aside something to which you have every right, something which is not in itself sinful, if it hinders you from loving your brother well? That's the question that the author of Hebrews wants us to, to think about, we must be willing to set aside those things, whatever they are, that hinder us from loving and serving our neighbors. So let me ask you, what are the examples in your life? What are the things that distract you from loving your neighbor well? What are the things that so consume your attention that you have no time left to even notice your neighbor's needs, much less give yourself to them? They may not be sinful in themselves, but you must be willing to set those things aside in order to run well the race that has been marked out for you. But it is not only the harmless things that hinder us. We can also be entangled by sins. We all experience passions. We, we all experience strong desires that are contrary to God's design for human life, that are, that are contrary to God's 
word, greed, malice, lust. We all have such desires. And we need to understand that we cannot hold on to these desires and cherish these desires and and nurture these desires and at the same time love our neighbor. It can't be done. The two are opposed to each other. The desires of the flesh are contrary to the desires of the spirit, Paul says in Galatians. They are at war with one another. They are mutually exclusive. We must give ourselves to one or the other. We cannot serve two masters. And so we must learn to lay aside these passions. We must learn to put them to death. But how? I'm sure you know from experience that it is not that easy. It's not as easy as simply saying, oh, I need to stop doing that. It's not that easy. So how do we do it? Of course, there must be a decision There must be a decision to renounce the desire itself. You you have to identify it. You have to know what it is. You have to know the the sin that is entangling you. You have to know the the sin that is keeping you from from running closely. You have to to name it. That is confession. It's what we do in our worship service each week. It's what we encourage you to do in your, your home worship each day. You are to name your particular sins particularly. You are to name those sins with which you struggle. That is confession. But it is not enough simply to confess them. You must also resolve to turn from them back to God in obedience. That is repentance. It is the the changing of your mind that changes your direction. Before you were going in this direction, you were pursuing this end because you had a sinful desire that was taking you that way. But now you have renounced that desire and you have resolved, you have made a decision to go in a new direction. That is what we must do. We must confess our sins and, and repent of those sins. But we can't even stop there. It's not enough simply to confess and repent. There must also be a plan for how we are going to go in a new direction, a full purpose of new obedience. Think of Jesus telling his disciples that if their right hand causes them to sin, they should cut it off. We know that God was, or that Jesus was not suggesting that we physically maim ourselves. We, we know that cutting off our hand or, or gouging out our eye would not actually keep us from sin. But, but the idea is there that, that there's to be a plan, a plan of action, a, a, a plan of how we are going to go in a new direction. And we must have such plans for our obedience. And then we must give ourselves to those plans. There must be effort. Again, in our circles, we are hesitant to talk about effort because we do not want to minimize grace. It is by grace that we have been saved, not according to works. And that is gloriously true. But we have been saved to do good works. We have been saved to run a hard race. There is effort. And we must daily renew our effort, renew our endeavor to walk in new obedience. That is what we are called to. It's how we set aside these sins. There's a decision 
There's a plan and there is effort to, to turn from our sins back to God in new obedience. But even this by itself is not enough. And that is why the author also says that in order to run well, in order to run with endurance, we must look to Jesus. We must set our eyes on him. For he is the founder and perfecter of faith. Now the ESV at this point says the founder and perfecter of our faith. And of course that is grammatically possible, but the, the pronoun's not actually there. In the Greek it simply says the founder and, and perfecter of faith. And I think it's probably better to, to leave out the pronoun because it helps us to understand how Jesus is actually the founder and perfecter of our faith. We see how he serves our faith better if we leave the pronoun out. Because to say that Jesus is the founder of the faith means that he is the one who ran this race before us. He ran the race that was set before him. The race of honoring his father and of loving his neighbor. Notice what the author says. He says, for the joy set before him. What is that joy? It's, it's the joy of, of doing his Father's will. It is, it is the joy of bringing many sons to glory. It is the, the joy of, of becoming the, the perfect redeemer of God's elect. That is the joy that was set before him, the, the joy of accomplishing redemption to the praise of his Father's glory and to the good of all those who had been entrusted to him. For that joy, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. You see, Jesus knew that there was a reward beyond death. He knew that glory lay on the other side of the cross, and therefore he was able to obey even to the point of death on the cross. He was able to complete the race marked out for him. And that's what it means to say that he is the perfecter. He is the one. He is the pioneer. He is the, uh, the author. He is the founder. He is the forerunner who ran all the way to the end and completed, made perfect the path of faith. Jesus walked the road all the way to the end. He completed the course, and therefore he is the perfecter of faith. And because he is the author and perfecter of faith, he is the author and perfecter of our in him, we have not only a perfect example to emulate, but because he finished the course in him, we have a Savior to trust. Because he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, we can entrust ourselves to him. It's not just that we have to follow the, the trail that he blazed. That would be an impossible task. That would be more than we could handle. That would be a race that would crush us. But because he has completed the course, he is now there as our perfect Savior to bring us home. See, we don't simply have to emulate. It's so much better because he walked the trail all the way to the end. Because he has now been exalted to the right hand of the majesty at high. Because he now sits at the right hand of God's throne ruling all things for us. Because he is our perfect Savior, we can now know for certain that he will not and cannot fail to bring us all the way home. 
He cannot fail to bring us all the way into his glory. So let me ask you this morning, what is your race? What are the opportunities that God is giving you, even in the midst of this pandemic, even in the, the midst of the, the quarantine? What is the opportunities that, that God is giving you to love and to serve your neighbor? Maybe it's something as simply as writing a note or, or making a phone call or sharing your toilet paper. I don't know what it is for you right now. I don't know what it is will be for you when life returns to, to something like normal. But you need to ask yourself, what is the race that has been set before me? What is the race that has been set before my family? What is the race that has been set before my small group? What is the race that has been set before us as a congregation? What is the race that has been marked out for us? I'm not sure what it will be. I'm not sure of all of the details. But I know this. Whatever it is, we are called to run that race with endurance. And we will only be able to run that race with endurance if we set aside the weights and the sins that hinder us. And if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so this morning, as we worship in our homes, let us make every resolution to do that this coming week, to set our eyes on Jesus, and to resolve to follow him in all the details of our lives, even as we renounce the weights and the sins that would keep us from running well. And we can make such a resolution because Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. He has already finished the course and he now stands at the right hand of the Father ready to strengthen us for every good work which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And because we have such a perfect Savior, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, how good it is to set our eyes on Jesus. How good it is to see him even now at your right hand, knowing that he has been exalted, knowing that he has been qualified to save all those who have been given to him knowing that if we will entrust ourselves to him, if we will call upon our, his name, we will never be put to shame, but will be exalted with him. Father God, let these truths put down deep roots in our hearts and let them bring forth fruit in our lives. The praise of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.